I know not if these wounds be mortal. I am not afraid to die, but should that be my fate, I call on all here present to bear witness, that I consider the unfortunate perpetrator of this deed a lunatic, and free from guilt. Dr. David Ramsey, May 6, 1815 Two hundred years ago, in the second decade of the 19th century, the world was a strange, fascinating, and precarious place. It was a time of global conflict and uneasy peace. A time of great environmental change. A time of disaster and miracles, anomalies and mysteries. It was a time when our modern world began to emerge and a time like almost no other in history. This podcast is about stories, true stories, of this remarkable era. This is the Second Decade Podcast. My name is Sean Munger. I'm a historian, an author, teacher, and podcaster. You can visit the website for this podcast at seconddecade.net. Second Decade is spelled out, all one word, two Ds in the middle. Thanks for joining me on this journey into the past. Episode 23, Murder in Charleston. In the spring of 1815, just after the end of the War of 1812, the city of Charleston, South Carolina presented an image of one of America's most charming and cosmopolitan cities. Its broad streets were lined with mansions and shops, and well-dressed white people walked on sunny afternoons in the shade of palm trees. There were merchants and lawyers, shipping agents, theaters, restaurants, even a branch of the Bank of the United States, a rare token of northern-based finance in the mostly agricultural Deep South. Since the colonial era, Charleston was always thought of as an especially charming and friendly city, the home of genteel citizens who were always kind to guests and known as exceptionally polite. But behind all the candlelit parlors, fancy carriages, and well-dressed southern ladies and their bewhiskered gentlemen, another Charleston lurked. A darker one. And I mean that very literally. In the second decade, and indeed in all the time between the American Revolution and the Civil War, Charleston, South Carolina was the only city in America, with a majority of its population enslaved. Charleston was, in many ways, the capital city of American slavery. The social structure of Charleston went even beyond a white minority owning the lives and labor of its African-American majority, who cleaned their clothes and houses, swept their streets, tended their horses, and very often raised their children. Even within the white community, Charleston was dominated by a tiny elite that owned and controlled over 80% of the city's wealth. If you lived in Charleston and you weren't enslaved yourself and didn't own slaves, you were most likely very poor. This is the story of a prominent member of that small Charleston elite and how he came to a violent and messy end in that year, 1815. Tonight you'll meet Dr. David Ramsey, something of a Renaissance man. Politician, revolutionary, scientist, meteorologist, doctor, philanthropist, and historian. But as we go through it, never forget the social and political backdrop against which it occurred. The very separate and very unequal and very unusual situation of Charleston, which was emblematic of the bifurcated nature of America as a whole during the second decade. Join me now for A Murder in Charleston. 
Tonight's episode is going to be a bit shorter than usual, and it's going to be the final episode of Second Decade for the first season. This podcast will continue, but I'm going to be taking a break for the summer. The second season of Second Decade will get going in the fall of 2017, most likely in October. I'm sorry for the lengthy gap between the previous episode and this one. A great deal has happened in my life, personally and professionally, since the last time I recorded a podcast episode. Thanks to everyone who continues to listen and talk about Second Decade, and those who asked where I've been and what the future of this show is. Rest assured, this podcast is not going away, but I have to get my own house in order, so to speak, in the next couple of months. Before we begin tonight, I have an announcement that may be of interest to you. I've begun offering online classes to the general public. If you go to my website, my personal website, seanmunger.com, which has an all-new look, by the way, at the top you'll see a link for classes. At that link, you can see what seminars I have coming up. The next class scheduled is called A Brief History of Climate Change, and it's going to be happening on Sunday, July 23, 2017, from 3 o'clock to 5 o'clock p.m. Pacific Time. The class will be held through a live video chat on Google Hangouts. All you need is a Google account, a webcam, and microphone. The ones that come standard on most modern laptops are perfectly fine. Cost to join the class is $25. On the page for the class, you'll see a link that goes directly to my PayPal account. Just click on, and it's super easy to contribute. I'll also put a link to these classes on the Second Decade website. On June 25th, I conducted the first online class, which was about Thomas Jefferson. Those of you who remember Episode 6 would be familiar with a lot of what came up there. A Brief History of Climate Change is going to introduce you to the history of the world's most complex problem, how anthropogenic global warming started, who discovered it, and under what circumstances. My academic forte is environmental history, so I'm pretty well versed in the history of climate change. This is going to be a fun and unusual class. No preparation necessary, no homework. Just pay the entrance fee, $25, wait for an email with instructions, and be ready to join us on Sunday, July 23rd. There will be more classes coming on a variety of subjects. Beginning most likely in late August, I'm going to be doing a six-week class on the history of the American Revolution. The details on that will be up soon. Anyway, if you're interested in classes, keep watching my website, seanmunger.com, and the link to classes is at the top. Now, let's get to today's subject, a murder in Charleston. David Ramsey, who was destined to become one of Charleston's most prominent and well-loved citizens during the second decade, was actually not born in South Carolina. He was born in Lancaster, Pennsylvania in 1749, the son of a relatively prosperous farmer, James Ramsey, who was born in Ireland. The Ramsey family was like many in late colonial America, devoutly religious and generally upstanding. The youngest of three sons, David Ramsey was bookish from an early age. It's said that by age 12 he'd read all the books that usually comprised a formal education in early America those tending to be Greek and Roman classics and some works of the European Enlightenment, as well as the Bible. The Ramses must have done pretty well economically, because David went to Princeton University, earning a Bachelor of Arts from there in 1765 at the age of 16. If you listen to episode 14, Down and Out at Harvard, which is my personal favorite of all the Second Decade episodes I've done, 
you know that kids in the 18th and 19th century tended to go to college in their early teens, much earlier than what we think of as college age 200 years later. Gravitating toward medicine, they called it physic at this time, David Ramsey eventually wound up in Philadelphia, apprenticing under one Dr. Bonds, a noted Philadelphia doctor. There were no medical schools in America at this time, and medicine, like law, was learned in a master and apprentice type sort of arrangement. You would essentially be apprenticed to a doctor, learn his trade, I say his because there were no women doctors in the 18th century, and then you'd go out to work on your own when you knew enough to be dangerous, so to speak. This was in the late 1760s, and Philadelphia, like other major cities in America, was aflame with revolutionary rhetoric. The Stamp Act of 1765 had aroused outrage and protest throughout the colonies, and much of the resistance came from urban areas, particularly the taverns, which were political meeting places as well as social watering holes. In Philadelphia, though, surprisingly it was the medical profession that was a special hotbed of revolutionary rhetoric. That's largely because of one man, a very prominent figure in the American Revolution, Benjamin Rush, who happened to be a doctor. When David Ramsey, in his early 20s, started attending lectures by Dr. Rush, he was captivated. The two became close friends, and Ramsey later called Rush his mentor. Benjamin Rush is a fascinating and bizarre figure. A fiery revolutionary, he was an early advocate of separation from Britain and establishment of the former colonies as an independent country culturally and intellectually, as well as politically. Rush signed the Declaration of Independence, and was at one point Surgeon General of the Continental Army. Distinguished as he was, though, you did not want to have Benjamin Rush as your doctor. He believed heavily in a medical theory called purging, essentially bleeding his patients to cure almost any ailment. The problem with this technique, at least as Dr. Rush performed it, was that Rush was grossly mistaken as to the amount of blood there is in a human body. Thus, exsanguination, bleeding to death, was a very real risk of being Dr. Rush's patient. Anyway, I digress. In 1773, with a letter of introduction signed by Dr. Rush himself, David Ramsey relocated to Charleston, South Carolina. He did quite well there and seems to have been a prominent citizen from the beginning. There must have been quite a culture shock, going from north to south at the time of the American Revolution, but perhaps not as much as you might think. There had been slavery in Philadelphia in the 1770s. In fact, Ramsey's mentor, Benjamin Rush, despite being a member of an anti-slavery society, actually owned a slave himself. Ramsey was a staunch supporter of the Revolution. He was elected to, south, to the South Carolina State Legislature in 1776, the year of independence. A biography of him, published in 1819, records that he gave the first public oration in America on the anniversary of the Declaration of Independence, July 4th, on the second anniversary in 1778, but who knows if it really was the first. In any event, while serving with the South Carolina militia as a field surgeon, Ramsey was captured by the British in 1780 and imprisoned aboard a ship at St. Augustine, Florida. The conditions of prison ships in the Revolutionary War were pretty horrible but Ramsey managed to survive. After 11 months as a POW, Ramsey was exchanged and eventually returned to Charleston. He also served two brief terms in the Confederation Congress after peace with Britain was secured. Within a few years, Ramsey was basically the leading light in the medical profession in Charleston. His patients were, of course, fellow members of that white elite, heavily interrelated with each other in terms of familial and social ties, 
and this elite controlled finances, governments, and the social order in Charleston. Doctors at this time were also practitioners of science. Charleston's medical community didn't just practice medicine. Through their various scientific studies, they also made significant contributions to geography, botany, zoology, geology, and mineralogy. In Charleston, in December 1789, 14 of these doctors, including Ramsey, came together to create the Medical Society of South Carolina, a board for the regulation of the medical profession in that city. One of the major reasons for a board like this, and a principal preoccupation of the doctors, was trying to cut down on the frequent epidemics that ravaged their community, especially yellow fever. Major epidemics of yellow fever had raked Charleston in 1699, 1703, 1728, 1732, and 1748, though some cases of it invariably appeared every summer. It was not long before the medical society essentially went into the business of meteorology as well as healthcare. In early 1791, barely 12 months after its foundation, the society doctors passed a resolution requiring its president, Ramsey of course, to procure a thermometer, barometer, and hygrometer to assist in logging meteorological data. They were interested in weather because doctors observed that outbreaks of yellow fever and other diseases tended to follow weather and climate conditions. When it was especially hot, humid, and sticky in Charleston, more so than usual, the dangers of yellow fever were particularly high. This was the world that David Ramsey lived in, and by virtue of his high social and economic status, one that he helped to control. Charleston was built on slavery. As a port city, it was vitally important to the economy of the South as one of the main ports by which Southern agricultural goods, tobacco, rice, and indigo in the colonial days, but later cotton, the way these goods reached European markets, especially British ones, and Charleston was a major importation center for slaves. The foreign slave trade was abolished by Act of Congress in 1808, but that didn't stop the slave trade. Slaves were illegally imported into Charleston from abroad, and legally brought there by ships from other parts of the United States, the so-called internal slave trade, which by the second decade was growing rapidly, thanks to the explosive growth of slavery and cotton cultivation in places like Georgia, Alabama, and Mississippi. For a while, the largest slave market in America was in Charleston, selling human beings day in and day out, nearly every day of the year. Almost all the labor in Charleston was done by slaves. You could walk down the streets and see slaves almost everywhere. African Americans, the majority of the urban population, and the not-so-secret backbone of Charleston society, provided the labor upon which the white urban elite, including Dr. David Ramsey and his wealthy patients, lived and depended. It was very much an unequal and hierarchical society. Though a prominent politician, local leader, and doctor, David Ramsey gained national reputation not through any of these vocations, but through his writing. In the 1780s, he began writing a history of South Carolina in the American Revolution. This ultimately branched off into a number of histories of the Revolutionary Period. Written between 1785 and his death in 1815, a few volumes were published after his death. Ramsey was not blind to the problems of slavery. He was more or less an apologist for it, but, men, but many American revolutionaries, including Thomas Jefferson himself, also forgave and defended slavery, sometimes while acknowledging, at least on paper, that it was a moral and political evil. You couldn't escape the shadow of slavery in Charleston in the American Revolution, or in the second decade. 
Here is what Ramsey wrote about slavery in one of his histories, quote, In the southern colonies, slavery nurtured a spirit of liberty among the free inhabitants. All masters of slaves who enjoy personal liberty will be both proud and jealous of their freedom. It is, in their opinion, not only an enjoyment, but a kind of rank and privilege. In them, the haughtiness of domination combines with the spirit of liberty. Nothing could more effectually animate the opposition of a planter to the claims of Great Britain than a conviction that those claims in their extent degraded him to a degree of dependence on his fellow subjects, equally humiliating with that which existed between his slaves and himself." End quote. In the spring of 1815, Dr. David Ramsey turned 66. He'd been married three times and widowed three times, his third wife, Martha Lawrence Ramsey, having died four years earlier in 1811. He had long been one of Charleston's most well-respected citizens. A less well-respected citizen of Charleston was a man named William Linnan, who was a tailor. Linnan's history is a little sketchy, and we don't know much about him. We do know that sometime in the second decade he got into some legal trouble, or started it. Today we might call Linnan a vexatious litigant, meaning a person who abuses court proceedings to try to harass people he doesn't like. Whatever the lawsuits that Linnan filed were about, he obviously didn't get the result he wanted. After losing in court, Linnan began petitioning the South Carolina State Legislature for redress. He was now convinced that the courts and judicial officials were out to get him. Failing to get anything from the South Carolina government, Linnan next turned his sight to the feds. He tried to appeal one of his cases to the U.S. Supreme Court. When that didn't work, he tried to bring impeachment proceedings against one of the Supreme Court justices, and he walked all the way from Charleston to Washington, D.C. to deliver the papers which naturally were not accepted. It appears that Lennon had some mental problems. He was well known in Charleston for what was called, delicately in the words of one contemporary account, a singularity of conduct. I've seen from my own experience as a lawyer that the court and legal system can be wrenching and infuriating for someone with mental illness, especially if a person has their mind fixed on some delusional or impossible outcome. Every twist and turn of the legal machinery can be incredibly disillusioning for people with mental issues. And as legal losses mount and each new judge or tribunal rules against them or dismisses them, it can look very much like an organized conspiracy. This is clearly how William Lennon saw things. After being denied in Washington, he was heard to remark, If the laws afford me no protection, I'll have to protect myself. Lennon was ready to take the law into his own hands. At some point in the spring of 1815, Lynn had hunted down his former attorney in Charleston and tried to kill him. The lawyer survived the attack, I was unable to find the particulars of it, and Lynn was arrested and thrown in jail. At the arraignment, it was very obvious that he wasn't quite right in the head. The judge ordered that Lynn be examined by two doctors to determine whether he was sane enough to stand trial. The doctors appointed by the court to make this examination were Dr. Benjamin Simons and Dr. David Ramsey. Simons and Ramsey examined William Lennon. They reported to the court that he was very clearly insane. A part of the report authored by Ramsey concluded that it would be dangerous to let him loose on the streets. He was, in 19th century terminology, completely deranged. As there were precious few facilities for treatment of the mentally ill at this time, Lennon was remanded to prison. At some point during his incarceration, however, Lennon's condition seemed to improve. In any event, the, th the authorities could not hold him indefinitely. He was finally released from jail. 
but someone had overheard Lennon issue a threat. He was determined, it was said, to kill the doctors who joined the conspiracy against him. Lennon's wrath had turned to the latest people he thought had wronged him, Dr. Simons and Ramsey. Evidence of how and for how long William Lennon stalked his prey are apparently lost to history. Given the circumstances of the crime, though, it seems pretty clear that the act was definitely premeditated. Lennon started going around with a gun, described as a horseman's pistol. I'm not sure exactly what kind of gun that is, but he concealed it in a handkerchief and prowled about the streets of Charleston looking for the doctors. Apparently, David Ramsey knew of Lennon's threat against him and Dr. Simons. It appears he wasn't too afraid of him, though. Recall, this is a guy who survived 11 months on a British prison ship, so he probably was a pretty hardy sort. He continued to go about his business, which was considerable. But Charleston was a pretty small town in the second decade, at least by modern standards. That Lennon would eventually catch up with him was just a matter of time. On Saturday, May 6, 1815, at about 1 o'clock in the afternoon, Dr. David Ramsey was walking down Broad Street in the center of Charleston, within sight of the front door of his home, when William Lennon snuck up behind him. He drew the pistol out of the handkerchief that concealed it, aimed, and pumped three slugs into the doctor's back. The first shot passed through Ramsey's coat without hitting him. The second shot struck him in the hip, exiting somewhere in the groin area. It was the third shot that ultimately proved fatal. Entering Ramsey's back near a kidney, it traveled a short distance through his abdomen and lodged in the intestines. He went down, collapsing into the street, blood pouring out of his coat. The shooting, occurring in broad daylight in the middle of one of Charleston's busiest streets, was witnessed by dozens of people, many of them prominent citizens of Charleston. A group immediately set upon Lennon, wrenching the gun away from him and subduing him. Others tended to Ramsey. He was carried to his house, evidently still conscious. He is said to have uttered the words that opened this episode, professing that, as he knew Lennon was insane, he regarded him as innocent. Ramsey lingered near death for two days. In 1815, a wound of the kind he'd received was almost certainly destined to be mortal. He had eight children who survived to adulthood. Probably some of them were with him at the end. On May 8, 1815, at about 7 o'clock in the morning, Dr. David Ramsey died. All of Charleston, at least all of white Charleston, was plunged into mourning. His funeral drew a huge crowd and a eulogy was given by the president of the Literary and Philosophical Society of South Carolina. He was buried at Circular Congregational Church, a prestigious old burial ground in Charleston. Ramsey's grave is still there and still visible, though the headstone, which he shares with various other members of his family, is broken, and the portion of it with his name on it is missing. As for William Lennon, after his arrest, he refused to accept the counsel of an attorney. Not surprising, considering that he thought the entire legal system was in a conspiracy against him. And he threatened to kill any lawyer or judge who judged him to be insane. His trial was postponed to January 1816. I wasn't able to figure out what happened to him after that. Presumably he was executed, or spent the rest of his life, whether it was long or short, in prison. The murder of Dr. David Ramsey by William Lennon was an act of insanity, but it didn't happen in a vacuum. Charleston was, in the second decade, a cauldron of seething tension, racial, social, and political. The genteel world of white community leaders, respected doctors, and men of science, tinkering with their instruments, was only a tiny stone on top of a rickety social pyramid, the massive bottom of which was made of enslaved peoples. Charleston remained a hotbed for the rest of the antebellum era. 
After the second decade, various flare-ups of the long fuse burning down to the Civil War occurred in and around Charleston, from the nullification crisis of the 1830s right up until the shelling of Fort Sumter in Charleston Harbor in April 1861, the first military engagement of the Civil War. David Ramsey had been dead for nearly 50 years by that time, but the city where he lived, worked, and ultimately died was at the very epicenter of the social and political earthquake, so bound up with slavery that struck American society in the middle of the 19th century. The life and death of David Ramsey is part of the history of that place. This is the end of the first season of Second Decade. Thank you so much for listening these past few months. If you like this podcast, please tell a friend. Leaving a star rating and a review on iTunes is especially helpful because it will help other history buffs like you find this podcast. I'd love for you to contribute to my Patreon account. That's patreon.com slash seanmunger. In addition to my Patreon account, you can find me on Twitter at seanmunger, there's an underscore there, and my website, seanmunger.com. And remember, you can sign up for history classes I'm teaching online. My historical sources for this episode include The Analectic Magazine, Volume 6, published by Moses Thomas, Philadelphia, 1815. Music Credits the main theme of this podcast is titled String Impromptu Number 1 by Kevin McLeod of Incompetech.com, used under Creative Commons by Attribution 3.0 license. Additional music, Piano Trio in D Minor by Robert Schumann, performed by the Claremont Trio. That one licensed by the Isabella Stewart Gardner Museum, Boston, under Creative Commons 2.0 license. Big thanks to Isabella Stewart Gardner Museum. This podcast was written and recorded by me, Sean Munger. Good night and have a great summer. Ohio, ready for some quick mental health facts? Let's go. Nearly 2 million Ohioans live with a mental health condition. In the U.S., more than 50% of people will be diagnosed with a mental illness in their lifetime. Depression is a leading cause of disability worldwide. So why are some of us still stigmatizing people living with a mental health condition when we know all of this? Let's listen to the facts and beat the stigma. Ohio, challenge what you know about mental health at beatthestigma.org.